Pastor Xavier Reese talks about the importance and simple truths of giving. Suffering has never hurt the church, ladies and gentlemen. Comfort has destroyed it and decayed it. The lack of money has never hurt the church. The abundance of money has. Let me leave you in a little secret. Listen, God doesn't need people to supply His church's money. God provides it if He's in the work. Very important. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Scripture is very clear when it tells us to ask for our daily bread. But the world seems to cry even louder when it attempts to lure us into getting a fast car, a nice home, designer clothing, and a huge bank account. Now, there's nothing wrong with success, but Pastor Xavier helps us to get a biblical perspective of our finances as he shares these simple truths drawn from 2 Corinthians in this important message titled, Giving is God's Work. Let's listen. Gold, 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 bright and yellow, hard and cold, molten, graven, hammered, and rolled, heavy to get and light to hold. Hoarded, bartered, bought and sold, stolen, borrowed, squandered, and poured, spurned by the young, but hugged by the old, to the very verge of the churchyard mold. Price of many crime untold, gold, 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 gold. The history of man shows his greed for money. It's part of our fallen nature. Christians are not excluded if we walk in the flesh. Money is essential for life, but it certainly cannot solve all of our problems. And in fact, sometimes it creates more problems when we have a lot of money. Paul now is dealing with the offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem, and he will deal with very specific details on giving as much such as the method, the manner, and the motives through these two chapters. But Paul had already mentioned about the collection, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, that they um, were to gather that collection for the poor saints that they had pledged a year before that. Paul's concern and involved for the poor saints was part of his life. It was kind of like a, 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 a demonstrated evidence of, of the oneness in Christ, Jew and Gentile, uh, because of the animosity between them. Sometimes we don't understand the animosity between Jew and Gentile. Our black and white animosity probably doesn't even come close to it. The Jews believed that the Gentile were created by God to kindle the fires of hell. And now they're Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. Paul first visited Jerusalem three years after his conversion, if you remember, in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. And um, Barnabas took him under his wing. Nobody would take a chance on him thinking he was an undercover Pharisee. Galatians 1.18 also gives us that. And Paul's second visit to Jerusalem was when he, uh, the saints at Antioch had sent some relief for the saints in Jerusalem because of the famine in Acts 11, 27 through 30. So from the very beginning, they were very concerned about the different needs. Now, Paul's third visit to Jerusalem was 14 years after his conversion at the First Church Council in Acts 15. 
And he also records that in, Gen- in uh, Galatians 2.1. And James and Peter and John had given Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And, and they just said, remember the poor in Galatians 2, 9 and 10. Now, Paul already has made uh, mention that the Galatians uh, had already given some money and stuff like that. And in all of his letters, you can track all this, that Paul has been going around collecting this. So it wasn't an isolated collection. Paul now, in his third missionary journey, was taking a collection for these poor saints of Jerusalem. And as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's dealing with this matter. In fact, in a few months after he's written this letter to the Corinthians, he would be writing to the Romans, telling them how the Gentiles felt about the offering and how they had been partakers of the spiritual benefits of the Jew, so they felt the responsibility to impart some of their material things in them in Romans 15, 25 through 27. So, again, not only in the first letter, not only here in the second letter, but also as he writes to the Romans, he mentions that collection for the poor. In Romans 15.31, Paul will ask for prayer that the gift might be received by the Jewish Christians because of that animosity. You notice that the, the Gentile outreach didn't go from Jerusalem. It went from Antioch. The Gentiles were never really fully accepted in the Jerusalem church. They had this stigmatism, and yet they were the first to go broke. Now, it could have been partially because of the, uh, they sold everything they had, and I believe that's part of it. They tried to do the communism of the, uh, of the day with true communism, meaning, meaning together, sharing everything, and that's a good intention, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work anywhere. You see, sooner or later, it's better for you to invest your money and to pr- let it work for you so you can provide for yourself and others than for you to sell everything, and then pretty soon somebody has to provide for you. It's real simple, okay? Now, Paul told Felix in Acts 24, 17, after many years, I, I come to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Remember, he got arrested. As he brought it, he was accused of bringing Gentiles to the temple, uh, and then he was Roman's ploy, if you will, political scapegoat. But God had him there by appointment. Apparently, the Corinthians had pledged again uh, the year before, and they had procrastinated, as we've seen. Now, Let's look at the giving of the Macedonians, which is characterized by three things here in verse 1 down to 7. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence, And in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. The giving of the Macedonians is characterized by the following. First, the giving was prompted by God. Verse 1 and 2. Prompted by God. Secondly, the giving was performed by man. Verse 3 through 5. And thirdly, the giving was practical for spiritual service 
verse 6 through 7. Let's begin here. The giving was prompted by God, verse 1 and 2. Take note in verse 1. The apostle Paul pointed out the example of the Macedonians to the Corinthians. Listen to his words. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Paul is making a transition in his letter, as we said. Paul uses the word moreover, a transitional word. It could be translated now. Paul has just finished that first division, defending his ministry, chapter 1 through 7. Now he moves to the second division, letter dealing with the collection, that which has been a problem, chapter 8 and 9, because of the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians and the uh, false Judaizers. One of the accusations against Paul was that he was taking this collection for himself, accusing him of corrupting and being dishonest. Now, notice Paul addressed the, the Christians there about money. Don't miss this. Real simple. Not non-believers. He's talking to Christians. How often Christian organizations and churches make their pledge, their beg before the world, and it's embarrassing. And they do it in such a way that it's so pressurized, it's so worldly, so commercialized, that it makes God to be some pauper beggar who's always out for a buck. That's man's misrepresentation of God. That's not God. We're going to see what God does as we look at this in the next chapter next time. The word brethren there, as you know, is those born in the same womb, whether it be a two parents or one parent. And, of course, the application is spiritually. They're born in the same family, the family of God, the Spirit of God, the Word of God. By the same provision that he mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's how we become one. Look at all of us in here. We're from different backgrounds, different races, different opinions, different uh, homes, everything else. And then now we're one in Christ. That's a miracle of God. Notice the apostle attributed the act of giving financially by the Thessalonians to be sourced in the grace of God. The word grace, as you know, is care, is unmerited favor, bestowed to the sinner of salvation. But we continue to live our life out through grace. Everything we receive is by grace. We can never glory in anything. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? If you have received that, why in the world are you boasting? And he tells that to the Corinthians, by the way, because they were carnal, arrogant, proudful. The word grace, charis, is directly tied to the gift to the poor saints. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 7. The word grace appears 10 times in chapter 8 and chapter 9. They can't separate them. The gift and grace go together. Now, the word bestowed means to give and to grant, simply to put and deliver. The grace imparted to them by God was responsible for the sufficiency of their financial giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem. It isn't because I'm so good. It isn't because I'm so kind. It's because of the grace of God. This grace of God was said to be sufficient for the churches of Macedonia. It's in the plural. Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. That whole region. Now notice verse 2. The apostle Paul pointed out the paradox of the Macedonians by their condition. He says that in great, a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Paul described them as having suffered Tremendously. The word affliction, as you know, means pressing together, crushing for graves, for olives. It's used for the physical persecutions of the Thessalonians. We saw it in the first letter. Paul came, ministered the gospel. He came by way of persecution. He received persecution there. He had to flee. He was very concerned about the Thessalonians. 
he sent uh, Timothy and them back to find out how they were doing. The phrase great trial describes the numerous and the magnitude of their severe testing that they had surpassed. In fact, the word trial there is described for the testing of metals to be purified, silver, gold, all of that. Which is an interesting connection because the Thessalonians were very wealthy and prosperous people in years past because of their gold and silver mines until Rome had confiscated them. And when you put heat to those type of metals, it only purifies them. Suffering has never hurt the church, ladies and gentlemen. Comfort has destroyed it and decayed it. The lack of money has never hurt the church. The abundance of money has. Amazing. Paul was referring to the suffering also effect of the region of being ravaged by civil war between Caesar and Pompey, between Brutus and Cassius and the Triumvirs, and finally between Augustus and Antonius. So this whole region of Greece there, Europe, was ravaged through civil war and they consequently had paid the price for it. Notice Paul, despite their horrible condition, indicated their incredible joy. Why? They had come to Christ. Think of all the backgrounds that we come from, all the different homes, different things, tragedies, accidents, bad homes, good homes that we've come from. And with all that baggage, we came and Jesus saved us and he put joy in our heart and we didn't use that as an excuse to be the people we used to be. But in spite of all that, the joy now is based on what God has done in our life. Wow. Joy, Kara, gladness, joyfulness. It wasn't over their great sufferings of the past. Their joy was due to their new birth. Joy is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, agape love in Galatians 5.22. Notice their joy is described as abundant, meaning more than necessary, overflowing, sourcing the grace of God. Not because I'm tough and not because I know how to do that, but the grace of God. The apostle attributes this joy of the Thessalonians to the grace of God bestowed on them. Nothing less. Then notice Paul described them as being in deep poverty, yet abounding in the riches of their liberality. Another paradox. The Thessalonians were dirt poor. Their past prosperity of silver and gold didn't help them at this point. The word poverty is used to describe an extreme poverty of a person. It appears three times in Scripture only. Here, for the Thessalonians. The second time in chapter 8, verse 9, for Jesus. Listen, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor and you through his poverty might become rich. So as he's dealing with the Corinthians about their unwillingness to give and all different things and the relationship, he says, listen, by the way, but look at what God has done. He was wealthy and he became poor for us. Now, what are we going to say when we give a penny or a dime? We kind of have to hang our heads down, right? There's a true comparison. Wow. The third time is for the suffering church Smyrna in Revelation 2.9. Only three times it appears. 
Now, the Thessalonians, in spite of their deep poverty, demonstrated, notice, incredible generosity in their giving for the poor saints at Jerusalem. The reference to the riches of liberality means simplicity and sincerity in the little they possessed. They made no big to do about it. It was just straightforward, nonchalant. The idea being they gave with singleness of heart and mind. Something had happened to these people. The gospel had touched them. The paradox, again, of the Thessalonians was that in spite of their being very, very poor, they gave eagerly and wholeheartedly. They did not use their poor condition as an excuse for not giving to the poor saints at Jerusalem. If anything, they could identify. The Russell Sage Foundation, several years ago, published the results of a survey. And it is quite a number of years ago. But think of what you hear here, depending on the time that he's talking about in our nation. He said, in the United States, families with a net income of less than 3000 a year gave more than 60% of all the money donated to charity. 3000 that's a ways back. You're talking about the mid-60s, okay? He says, families whose income was less than 5000 donated 82% of the total Families with an income between 10000 to 20000 a year gave only 1.9 of their income. So the more people made back then, the less they gave. Now, nothing changes with people. He says, according to the Internal Revenue Service analysis, Americans who itemize their deductions give less than 3% of their adjusted gross income to churches and charity. The point is, look how little the people who made the most gave. Do you think it's changed now? No. People are people. Money rules us. It has a hold on us at times. It's a constant struggle. Any giving that is not prompted by God through the grace of God is a work of human philanthropy and rewarded by men, not God. The giving is based on their ability and their motive to be seen and to be remembered and to have a name for themselves. And though their giving may help people, and that's good, but it's not recognized by God as that which is being done through him or for the right motive. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 3 through 4. And Jesus said, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. That's why we don't put your name on a parking stall, or a chair, or a toilet seat, or anything else. Because you've given a certain amount of money. I, as your pastor, have never seen what you give. I don't look at the tithing. I don't want to know. I want to be able to minister freely. We let God bless you. He knows your heart. He's the one that will reward you. In the 39 years that I've been a Christian, 36 years as a pastor, I have known people with very little resources. And it just seems that they are always giving to people, helping people, doing all kinds of stuff. They're the greatest giver. Paul the Apostle, when he um, spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.35, he says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And Paul lived it out. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Proverbs eleven twenty five says, and any of you who have walked with God for any length of time, and it's not that God pays us back, and it's not the philosophy, I give one and God gives me ten. That's, those are all carnal things, and, and, and pastors use that to, to, to pressure people, to connive people, okay? But if you've been faithful to God, you've walked with God for years, you know, you know that you can. I'll give God, and you know that God is faithful. And let me suggest to you that many people, the people that have more problems with God, all they have to do is look at their checkbook, and they'll have the answer. Because the first thing that changes in my life is how I spend my money when I become a Christian. Because that's my heart. You understand? <laughs> Proverbs 22, 9 says, He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Our giving should not be confined to money, by the way, but um, help, time. Sometimes it's a lot easier to hear, here, I'll write you a check. But when someone says, hey, I'll come over and help you clean your garage out, oh, man, for whatever reason, they like me. <laughs> They're showing their affection to me. You understand? They say, well, you know, I got a guy that works for me. I'll, I'll send him over to do it for you. Well, that doesn't mean you're, you're helping me. And so it's a lot easier with money. We got to be careful. God sees and acknowledges what it costs me to give. Take a person who makes $500 a month if they give to the Lord, as God leads them, not as man tells them, God knows that it costs them. When we first started in this ministry, most of us were young parents just getting started. And uh, we didn't make that much. Now, years later, the kids are gone. We're a lot better off. <laughs> so what we give doesn't really hurt us. Doesn't really cost us. Now, does that mean that God doesn't acknowledge? Yes, as long as my heart is unto the Lord, God acknowledges it. But let's not make the difference of what it would cost you at 500 a month and someone who made 10,000 a month. One would be a great sacrifice. The other one would be nothing. God honors both if the attitude is right. My love for the Lord. You understand? Very important. Mark 12 23 through two, um, on down speaks of the widow with the two mites. You're familiar with it. Jesus called the disciples himself and said to them, Surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given the treasury. I mean, it freaked them out, the disciples. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. She gave of what it took to live. Jesus took note of that. Disciples didn't. The people around them. We get impressed by the people and by the amount. We get impressed by the amount of number of people in the church or the amount of money that is given and, and the angels throw up. God sees differently. Like when he sends Samuel down to anoint the king. All of Jesse's sons, handsome, tall. Nope, nope, nope. You have any more kids? I got a red-headed, freckle-faced, snotty kid taking care of the sheep. Bring him in. Oh, that's him. Anoint him. The giving was prompted by God, ladies and gentlemen. Let me leave you in a little secret. Listen, God doesn't need people to supply his church's money. He uses them. We're going to see this next. The early years of this ministry are complete miracles. God provides it if he's in the work. Pastor Xavier Reese with a simple reminder that our offerings are a reflection of our giving of the heart. 
and not our wealth. And you can find this program online to hear any portion you may have missed. Just browse for today's date in the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. You can request your own personal copy of today's essential study from 2 Corinthians as well. It's called Giving is God's Work. And as always, it's available on CD for just $4. And this is one message you'll want to share with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. The title to ask for once again is Giving is God's Work. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station when you contact us. Tithes and offerings are much more than a formality for giving. They're a matter of the heart. Find out more when you tune in to the next edition of Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com